So the first reading is from Philippians. It can be found on the, in the Church Bibles on page 1179. Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4. So that's page 1179. <clears throat> Paul said, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of, being one, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Our second reading is in Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 12, and you can find this on page 1018 in the Church Bibles. So we read Mark, chapter 12, beginning at verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your hearts, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. better sorry so I've been wondering this week what you do with your spare time maybe you enjoy the garden sport music making or craft all sorts of different things but lots of people these days my own family included here enjoy disappearing into the fantasy world of a video sort of game now I agree that that's an acquired taste but do you know that there are things to be learned by all of us in the recreational pursuits of others? You see, in these fantasy worlds, the characters 
often engage in a quest of some sort. They have an aim in mind, and the focus of all their activity in the game is to achieve that end. It's very important, however, not to be dismissive of seemingly insignificant details along the way. So my sons tell me, anyway. An unimportant character at the beginning of your quest might have been willing to share a useful clue that would make your life easier at the end. Philippians 2 is one of my very favorite passages in the whole Bible. It's so full of hope and gospel truth. And our four verses today are an introduction to one of the most awe-inspiring chapters in the whole of the New Testament, I think, anyway. But it would be a shame to rush on by the introduction, for we would miss treasure that would lay for us the foundation of understanding for later verses. Treasure that prepares the ground for the seeds of the gospel to better take root in our hearts and to flourish. On the occasion of Rose's dedication, it's a wonderful opportunity to remind us all what the Christian life should look like. We love Rose and her family, and we give thanks to God for her, and we long for her to grow up in a true understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So let's turn to it now. Last week, we spent some time reflecting with Simon on Paul's discussion of the shape of a worthy life. That was in chapter one. Chapter two builds directly on that. It begins, if then, or therefore, in some translations. And that reminds us that what we thought about last week is why we say what we say afterwards. The if is not a wishy-washy if, full of confusion and uncertainty. In Greek, it's more of a so. It implies certainty that calls for a response. Paul knows they have felt encouragement comfort, fellowship, tenderness and compassion. And so he calls on them to respond in a certain way. Paul lays out for us what he sees as the central characteristic of the Christian life. Unity. It is necessary for us as a church and as individuals if we wish to thrive in a somewhat hostile world to be of one mind. A modern theologian has paraphrased our passage like this. I have a single desire, says Paul, that your daily life should match the worth of the gospel. Without such a life, you will never hold your ground against the world, strong in what God has done for you, unanimous, jointly working for your common faith but such steadfastness has great results. It convicts the world and convinces you. It condemns the world, it confirms the church. Therefore, make my joy full by being of the same mind. 
Do you know, you can't help thinking what an extraordinary person Paul must have been. Because I think if I was in prison, alone and in chains, I'm not sure this is what would spring to mind as the thing that would make me most happy. Maybe a bath or a good meal or a walk in the fields with my friends. But Paul has something else in mind. He is so focused on the well-being of his friends. He draws out some characteristics that he longs to see in the church in Philippi and that we hope to grow in here at St. Swithin's and that we hope Rose will grow up being surrounded by. They're characteristics that should be true of every Christian community. Oneness, unison and harmony. Let's think for a few moments about each of those three words. So, Christian oneness. When we accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour of our life, we all receive the same Holy Spirit to live in our hearts. He begins a personal work of grace within us that heals our relationship with our Heavenly Father and also heals relationships with those around us. As we each experience the reality of God's love for ourselves, we share the feeling of loving comfort and gentle encouragement that the Holy Spirit brings. We all start off in a different place. Our hurts, sorrows and discouragements are all our own. But as the Psalms tell us, God knows each one of us intimately. In Christ's love, we hear a voice that speaks to our individual heart. It's personal. It's a love that we feel through the Holy Spirit who empowers his church to be something quite beyond what we can be in our own strength. He encourages us to be to each other what Christ has been to us. His Holy Spirit draws us together as he gently invites us all out of a place of need and into a new life in Christ. Many of us here can testify to that truth, I know. It's a kind of love that meets us where we are and it welcomes us as we are but it's unwilling for us to stay needy. He wants more for us. He wants us, in his love, to live life in all its fullness. Moving on then to the concept of unison. There is, I think, quite a difference between the singing together of an enthusiastic rugby crowd and the singing of in unison of a beautiful choir. Both have large numbers of joyful, enthusiastic participants singing the same song, and both, I think, have a beauty in their own way. But they really are not the same. 
for the individuals in the rugby crowd come together to express their own joy and their aspirations for their team. It's often a spontaneous bubbling up of enthusiasm, but largely uncoordinated, with little care for anyone else or the quality of the result in musical terms. The choir, on the other hand, spends many hours practicing a song to bring about the finished result. The different voices practice to perfection their own part, and then when they come together, they perform with an attentiveness to one another that holds together the performance. Like the choir, Christian unison does not happen without considerable effort. We are all flawed human beings, and by God's grace, his spirit works in us to make us each more like Jesus. As we all, as individuals, grow in the likeness of Christ, so our ability to live alongside one another improves. We are all very different, with different passions, different strengths, different weaknesses. But we're all touched by the same love and fundamentally build our lives on the same truths. The same Holy Spirit works within us and draws us together. And this leads us to the third thing that one might expect to see in a Christian community. Harmony. No one really expects true harmony from a rugby ground. But if you were to come along one evening to a recital from a choir here at St Swithin's, often the characteristic that is strikingly beautiful is the harmony. Soloists can be extraordinary. Accompaniment can be beautiful. And the acoustics of this building are truly amazing. But it is the harmony of the whole that carries the day. And that, interestingly, requires every choir member to sing their own part with diligence and care. You might say that the success of the harmony is the responsibility of every individual. And so it is with Christian harmony. The success of our Christian harmony here at St Swithin's requires every member to have a humble, godly estimation of themselves and be committed to the well-being of others. For that is the paradox of success in the kingdom of God. Paradoxes challenge us in many aspects of life. It's a strange paradox, they told me in A-level geography, that deserts, some of the driest places on earth, are formed by the actions of wind and water. Escher is famous for mind-boggling pictures that make you frown to look at them and work them out. You may be familiar with some of them. In literature, paradox abounds. Perhaps most famously, Hamlet talks of being cruel to be kind. And we wrestle with holding together these two opposing concepts. The Quaker theologian Elton Trueblood is reported as saying, 
if a man wishes to avoid the disturbing effect of paradoxes, the best advice for him is to leave the Christian faith alone. I think that advice applies to women too, for if we are to achieve success as a Christian community, if we are to achieve our goal of Christian unity, it will only be by following the example of our Lord and assuming an attitude of humility rather than one of self-importance or concentration on our own needs, for that matter. Perhaps, unlike advancement and success in the rest of the world, Christian love is not self-seeking, but rather seeks the good of others. Selfish ambition has no place within the church. You may remember last summer when Bishop Peter arrived. He confessed that he had not been at all keen to put himself forward for the role at first. Far from seeking professional advancement, he expressed only a sense of his own inadequacy to the high office. And the Archbishop of Canterbury had to insist that he put his papers forward for consideration. I'm sure we're all glad that he did. And we must pray for the Holy Spirit's enabling power to fill him daily in that challenging role. In fact, we'll have an opportunity to welcome him here later in the year. It's worth considering how our lives and witness would be affected if we were all to employ the godly humility that Paul speaks of in our own lives. The world might suggest that you should fight for your own corner. You should promote your own cause and seek your own fulfillment and well-being. Some very famous advertising campaigns are built on encouraging self-indulgence simply because you are more important than anyone else. The advertisers play on the secret wish in all of our hearts to put ourselves first. But this is not the model that Jesus lay before us. In a moment or two, we'll gather around the communion table together and remind ourselves of the story of Jesus' birth amongst us and earthly life lived for the good of others. We'll be reminded that although he lived that life without any sin whatsoever, he gave himself up to suffer rejection and humiliation, to die upon the cross for our sake, so that we might one day be restored to relationship with our Heavenly Father. All this he did willingly, putting the needs of others before his own comfort. I wonder how it would influence our behaviour if in truth we sought the good of another before our own? What would our marriages look like if we always put the good of our spouse before our own good? In our friendships, in our workplace, in our parenting, that's a toughie, or with our neighbours, what would the world look like if we truly sought to follow the example of the one who gave everything 
in order that we might be saved. In our Gospel reading, Jesus exhorted us to love our neighbour as ourselves, and that really is quite a tall order. It means we respond to God's love for us by passing it on to those we bump into every day, even though, just like us, they are not very lovely themselves. They may not deserve it, but then really, neither do we. And our Lord did not wait for us to be worthy of his love before he offered it. What would this week look like for you if you were truly to follow his example? William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, believed that the measure of a man or woman's power can be found in the depth of their surrender. So as we close now, and approach the communion table to receive gifts of bread and wine that remind us that Jesus held nothing of himself back in obedience to his Father. May I humbly ask you to consider how much of your life is given over to Jesus? How much time and energy in your life is given over to seeking the well-being of your brother and sister in Christ? As a community this week, let's put our whole heart into loving God and to loving our neighbour as ourselves, that we might truly reflect Christ to one another and to the world around us. Amen. Amen.